If you would take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Exodus, chapter number 19. Exodus, chapter number 19. Last week, we looked at chapters 17 and 18, which we noted are really a transitional place in the book of Exodus. In chapters 1 through 18, God is making himself known by saving a people all his own. God makes his name known within Israel by saving the people of Israel from their Egyptian bondage. And he makes himself known among the Egyptians by saving the people of Israel from within their Egyptian bondage. God makes himself known by saving a people all his own. And what remains of the book of Exodus, chapters 20 and following, God makes himself known through his saved people. What you have in chapters 20 and following, virtually all of what remains in the book of Exodus are the stipulations of the covenant that God makes with his people. In other words, God gives his people the law. He gives them the code by which they are to live. God communicates to them what is now expected as citizens of his kingdom. As his special chosen people, God says in what remains of Exodus, this is what is required of you. If I could translate into our context very plainly, it matters how you live as a follower of Jesus. God is making himself known in the world by saving a people unto himself, by calling us out. And at the same time, God is making himself known through lives lived differently as we have been called out, a people saved unto God for his glory and for his glory alone. Chapter 19 is sort of a, a preparatory setting. Here in chapter 19, God says, ready yourselves to receive the law of God. God says, you, you need to position yourselves. You need to take a certain posture. There's, there are preparations that need to be made in order to, to be ready when I give my word to you in Exodus chapter 20. If you found your way there to Exodus 19 and verse 1, I'd like to invite you to stand with me out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. Exodus 19, beginning in verse number 1. The Bible says, In the third month, on the same day of the month that the Israelites had left the land of Egypt, they entered the, entered the wilderness of Sinai. And after they departed from Rephidim, they entered the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness, and Israel camped there in front of the mountain. So Moses went up the mountain to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, This is what you must say to the house of Jacob and explain to the Israelites. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to me. What a beautiful description of what God had done. In verse 5, he says, Now if you'll listen to me and carefully keep my covenant, you'll be my own possession out of all the peoples, although all the earth is mine, and you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. These are the words that you're to say to the Israelites. And after Moses came back, he summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him. And all the people responded together, We will do all the Lord has spoken. So Moses brought the people's words back to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear when I speak with you and will always believe you. 
Moses reported the people's words to the Lord, and the Lord told Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. They must wash their clothes and be prepared by the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people, put boundaries for the people all around the mountain, and say, Be careful that you don't go up on the mountain or touch its base. Anyone who touches the mountain will be put to death. No hand may touch him. Instead, he'll be stoned or shot with arrows. No animal or man will live. When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, then they may go up on the mountain. Then Moses came down from the mountain to the people and consecrated them, and they washed their clothes. He said to the people, be prepared by the third day. Don't have sexual relations with women. On the third day when morning came, there was thunder and lightning, a thick cloud on the mountain, and a loud trumpet sound, so that all the people in the camp shuddered. Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was completely enveloped in smoke because the Lord came down on it in fire. The smoke went up like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain shook violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in the thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai at the top of the mountain, and the Lord summoned Moses to the top of the mountain, and he went up. The Lord directed Moses, go down and warn the people not to break through to see the Lord, otherwise many of them will die. Even the priests who come near the Lord must purify themselves, or the Lord will break out against them in anger. But Moses responded to the Lord, the people cannot come up Mount Sinai since you warned us, put a boundary around the mountain and consider it holy. And the Lord replied to him, Go down and come back with Aaron. But the priest and the people mustn't break through to come up to the Lord, or he will break out in anger against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. In chapter 20, verse 1, the Bible says, Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Do not have other gods besides me. Don't make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below and the waters under the earth. You mustn't bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the father's sin to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Don't misuse the name of the Lord your God, because the Lord will not leave anyone unpunished who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. You are to labor six days and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You mustn't do any work. You, your son or your daughter, your male or your female slave, your livestock, your foreigner who is within your gates. For the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and everything in them in six days. Then he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and declared it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that you may have a long life in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Don't murder Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't give false testimony against your neighbor. Don't covet your neighbor's house. Don't covet your neighbor's wife, his male or female slave, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. All the people witnessed the thunder and the lightning, the sound of the trumpet and the mountain surrounded by smoke. When the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. And they said, you speak to us and we will listen, Moses, but don't let God speak to us or we will die. Moses responded to the people, don't be afraid, for God has come to test you so that you will fear him and will not sin. And the people remained standing at a distance as Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, we pray, we ask, Lord, that that you would 
grant us understanding. God, more than just a superficial understanding of what is required by these passages, but an understanding with wisdom and, and depth. I pray, God, that you would break our hearts over the many ways that we have violated your word, your command. You have made yourself known in saving so many of us, and yet in so many ways we have miscommunicated your character and what you demand of us in the way we've conducted ourselves as your saved people. God, we ask even now that you would forgive us just as you prepared the hearts of the Israelites to receive the laws of God in chapter 20, that you would ready our hearts now, that we would listen and listen well. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Chapter 19 prepares the way, as we said moments ago. There's a redundancy about chapter 19. God says, tell them, don't come up the mountain. If they break through the boundary, then I will break out in anger against them. The redundancy is there because what God has to say is important. What God says one time is important. But when God says something three times, you better stand up and listen. God says again and again and again. And he's about to manifest himself in a very severe way. Reveal his commandments to the people. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, one of my favorite passages as it relates to the special revelation of God through his word, Moses recounts for the people of Israel, has there ever been a nation to whom God spoke forth as from the fire and they lived? In other words, usually when God speaks, people die. His person, his presence, when he speaks, is so powerful. It is so severe that we cannot bear with it. Yet God is pleased to veil his glory in such a way that he might speak to the people of Israel and they would live. God says, get yourself ready. Prepare yourself that you may hear rightly what God has to say. Even this morning, there is a great danger that we will not hear rightly, that we will not listen well. We are deeply hypocritical when it comes to hearing passages like the one that is before us. Early in my Christian experience, the dates fail me now, but I had not been a believer for very long when, when the state of Alabama had the big dust-up with Judge Roy Moore and the Ten Commandment monument in, uh, in, in the Alabama Supreme Court. And I was just a young believer and very zealous, and I just wanted to do anything that I felt like I could do to make a difference in the world for the kingdom. And, and the call was given that Christians would, would come there and, and, and would uh, sort of petition and protest and make our voices heard that the commandments would remain in the courthouse. And I did, all by myself, as a barely 20-year-old boy, as best I remember. And we heard from presidential candidates and various politicians. And I remember riding back that night from that trip over. Everyone thought I was crazy and uh, going, going over. And I just remember riding back and thinking, sort of a strange thing that Christians would be all in a tizzy about defending the place of a monument in a building when we don't tend to keep the commandments inscribed on the monument. And, and for me, or as a new believer, it was, it was a light bulb moment for me at the deep hypocrisy that exists within cultural Christianity. And even within the true people of God, 
When, when it comes to the plain language of the Scripture, we've become resistant to the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. We, we simply do not hear well when it comes to these kinds of passages. So my charge to you this morning is to listen well, to examine yourselves, to see that you're in the faith, and to see that you're in keeping with what God has required of us in this text and in countless others. Set aside Thanksgiving activities, whatever happened this morning, what might happen this afternoon, and, and think with a sober mind about how, how, what the analysis really is if this is the standard by which we are to be, to be judged. God says, get ready. And then in chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, God gives the first of the Ten Commandments. Verse 1 says, God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Do not have other gods besides me. God's very specific about who he is. Even as he refers to himself in verse 2, I am the Lord your God, he uses his special name. This is not a generic name for God. I am Yahweh, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, your God. I am the God who brought you out of your slavery, the God who involved himself in history as it unfolded in order that my people would be brought out of their bondage in Egypt. He's very clear about who he is, even before noting, you must have no other gods besides me. He's very specific about who he is. And you need to be very specific about who he is as well. You may believe that there's no real danger for you in this area. You know who God is, and you wish to put him first in your life. But the most crafty of false religions, the most clever of deceptions in our day and age, have co-opted the language of the Bible. That is, they say many of the same things that we say. They use the language of Scripture, but something altogether different is intended. I remember back when uh, the Tea Party political movement was at its height, and there was this massive gathering on the Washington Mall, and a great sermon given by a political editorialist uh, who was the hottest thing in political uh, talk at that particular time, Glenn Beck. And he gave what was really a very stirring, patriotic sermon there as hundreds of thousands of people gathered together to hear what he had to say. Now, many Americans were very encouraged by what he had to say, and there was a great deal of, of, of good that was communicated in the message as it related to American citizenship and patriotism in general. But the thing that troubled me the most was that within the Christian community, it was characterized as a Christian sermon. What most missed is that Glenn Beck was not a Christian at all, but a Mormon, using the same terminology that we might use, say, saying something that we might resonate with on some level, but when you really begin to investigate what's intended by the use of the same terminology, it's something altogether different. My, my heart was burdened at what I heard, as there seemed to be this incredible lack of discernment within the church to determine the good from the bad the gospel from a false gospel. You must be very, very, very careful. Satan is clever and crafty, and there are multitudes of Jesuses parading around out there who simply cannot save. 
When we speak of Christ, we don't speak of some abstract concept or the Jesus of our imagination, but the only begotten Son of God who invaded earth in his incarnation, who lived without sin, who died a sacrificial death on Calvary's cross, who was raised again on the third day, ascended to the right hand of God and seated in a position of authority eternally, who beckons that all who would would come to him. We speak of the Christ of the Bible. God says you must have no other gods besides me. Commandment number two comes in verse number four. Don't make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. You mustn't bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the father's sins to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You know that God's pretty serious about this idolatry business, right? If if you'll think for a moment about biblical history, God says don't have idols. The people have idols and they're exiled from the land. They're sent away into their Babylonian captivity. And if you go to Israel today, you'll know that there are still a lot of spiritual and religious issues. You may have this biblical idea about what Israel looks like today, but I, I will promise you it looks much different than what you may have in your sanctified imagination. Let me tell you what you won't find in Israel. Idols. Because God's really serious about idolatry. Now, the danger for us in Western society is we don't feel as though this relates to us as much because, after all, we don't have stone statues of trees that we bow to or worship. No, that's because our idols are far more sophisticated than the Eastern idols that we typically have in view when we read Old Testament or even New Testament text. The business of idolatry is critically important. Now, I'm going to press on a little bit this morning a distinction between what seem to be internal commandments and external commandments. There are certain commands that, that we seem to have the ability to judge on the basis of our outward performance, what we do externally. And then there are commandments that are almost entirely, if not entirely, internal, like do not have an idol or make an idol for yourself. And what I want you to hear, what I want you to see with me this morning is that the external commandments are dependent upon our faithfulness to the internal commandments. In other words, if you have idols, whether they be in your hearts or in your homes physically, you will, out of necessity, violate the other commandments within the Ten Commandments. If you lie or if you steal, you lie or steal Because other gods have taken the place of God in your life, you have idols in your life. You will lie to protect your name or maybe your wealth or whatever the case would be. You're always lying to protect something. In that instance, the thing protected has become the idol in your life. Maybe you tell a lie to protect your reputation or you tell a lie on your taxes to protect your savings account. Well, either your popularity or your bank account has become your idol. In any event, it has become an idol for you. You have given priority to its place in your life over the place of God who has required of us devotion, faithful obedience. If you steal, it's because you have idolized the thing that has been taken. You have given it priority over the place of God in your life. Don't think for a moment 
that this idolatry business is something for other parts of the world or for another day and age. It is a pressing issue for you and for me. We could spend a lot of time there, and perhaps somewhere down the line we will. Commandment number three comes in verse number seven. God says, do not misuse the name of the Lord your God because the Lord will not leave anyone unpunished who misuses his name. In the language of the King James Version, do not take the name of the Lord in vain. That is, don't invoke the name of God carelessly or arbitrarily without meaning or intended effect. Anytime God's name is attached to vulgarity, surely that is an example of misusing the name of God. This is commonplace in our culture. We even have acronyms to make shorthand of our misuse of the name of God or the taking of God's name in vain. And here the Lord warns that this is a deadly serious issue. God will not leave unpunished anyone who takes his name in vain or misuses his name. It ought not to be a part of the vocabulary of any follower of Jesus Christ that we would misuse God's holy name. In, in history, there's been a, a sort of a story, and I, I believe it to be a, a myth, but it speaks to the reverence that has been given God's name throughout history of how the scribes who, when copying down the manuscripts of the Old Testament, would go through a ceremonial baptism before they would even write the name of God. Now, as best I know, that did not really happen in history, but the reason the story stands is because it fits the expectation that incredible reverence was paid, the use of God's name, that no one would even write the name of God without carefully considering that their heart were made right, that they had consecrated themselves before God before they would even invoke the name of God. My Bible translation and in communication, I refer to God's proper name in the Old Testament as Yahweh. But the reality is we're not entirely certain as to how that name is to be pronounced. Only the consonants have been preserved in the Hebrew language. And because there was such reverence about speaking the proper name of God, something of that name was lost in oral tradition. There are disagreements as to how we should properly pronounce the proper name of God. It is a deadly, serious thing when we invoke the name of the God of heaven. Not something that should be done lightheartedly. And there will come a name when the mouths of every sinner who have ever slandered the name of our God will bow before him and confess his lordship. Commandment number five marks the beginning of what I'll describe this morning as the more external of the commandments. God said, no, we're skipping one. Commandment number four. You thought you were going to get out of one, didn't you? <laughs> Preached a sermon this morning at Longview Point on the nine commandments. That's what you could tell all your friends. God says in verse eight, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You are to labor six days and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You mustn't do any work, you, your son or your daughter, your male or your female slave, your livestock or the foreigner who is within your gates. For the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and everything in them in six days. He rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and declared it holy. 
I, I talk about my granny enough. You may feel like you know her, but she meant a great deal to me. And when we were kids, we didn't go to church, but we did go to granny's house on Sunday. We'd give granny time to be home from church, and we'd all load up, and, 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 we, would, and we would go. Now, I didn't know anything about the Bible before God saved me. I, I couldn't find Genesis with both hands and a flashlight. But what I knew, I knew from granny. And then, as a child, they had a big pond behind their house that had the biggest catfish you'd ever seen in your life. And we would go on Sunday and always wanted to go fishing. That was the only day that we went to Granny's. And Granny would say, if you fish on Sunday, you'll catch the devil. <laughs> now, I'm pretty sure, pretty sure that's not what remember the Sabbath day means. But it, but it, it grabbed my attention. The whole idea of catching the, catching the devil when you're six years old, that's a pretty serious deal, you know. Here for us, is, here's an example of how we approach the Old Testament as Christians. As believers who have come under not the Old Covenant, but the New Covenant. When we come to passages that we struggle to relate to because we're on this side of the cross, here's how we approach them. We don't ask if they relate to us. We ask how they relate to us. Because Jesus said that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Every word of God's word is good and profitable for you as a believer. So the question for us is not if the Sabbath command is good for us or applies to us. The question is, how does it apply for us? And the Sabbath command really has, uh, two, there are really two factors involved here. One, it remembers the created order of God, the supremacy of God over creation, and invites us to join after his example in resting. Now, there's a, there's a spiritual level to that and a physical level to that. The spiritual rest required of us in observing the Sabbath command has been fulfilled in Jesus. If you read the New Testament, much of what the Pharisees had issues with with Jesus was the fact that he did good works on the Sabbath day. They wanted nothing done on the Sabbath day. They built wall after wall after wall around the Sabbath command. Nothing could be done, so much so that the number of steps you were permitted to take away from your house had been measured. They had been chronicled. You had a certain number of steps from your door that could be taken, certain circumstances under which you could do certain things, but they were very restricted. Jesus says, is it not good to do something good on the Sabbath? And he reminds the Pharisees that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. It's not intended to be this overly restrictive thing that prevents you from doing what is good and upright on the Lord's day. Then later in the New Testament, we're instructed that Jesus is our Sabbath. Jesus is our rest. Jesus fulfills the spiritual obligation of the Sabbath commandment. We have our rest in Jesus. Jesus said, come unto me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. We enjoy it in part in the here and now. We have rested from our labors in the sense that we might labor towards salvation. We have come to terms with the reality that even our righteousness is as filthy rags. That yes, we are saved by works, but those works are not our own. They are the works of our Savior Jesus, who became sin for us in in order that we might become the righteousness of God. We have rested in Jesus. But there's a practical and, and physical application of the Sabbath command that remains well intact. You need 
to rest. Some of you who are doers, you feel as though you're achieving something. You feel as though you, you have accomplished something when you work endlessly without rest. And, and if you'll examine yourself and your productivity, you'll find that working seven days a week is not productive. In fact, it's counterproductive. Because God has written into the constitution of our very existence that we need rest. You must identify seasons of rest, a weekly day of rest. Historians refer to the Sabbath command as the world's oldest labor law. God has provided for us because he knows us better than we know ourselves. Remember the Sabbath day. Now, in command number five, we're shifting here, as I said a moment ago when I was on the wrong command, toward the more external of commands. And the fourth command, the Sabbath command, is really a nice transition because it has both an internal and an external component. Remembering the Sabbath, meditating on the Sabbath is a reflection on who God is for us, a reflection on the fact that our rest is found in Christ and in Christ alone. But there's a physically observable pattern of resting that might well be observed in us as we enjoy a Sabbath day's rest. The rest of the commandments are really externals for the most part. For instance, honor your mother and father, commandment number five. In fact, verse 12 says, honor your father and your mother so that you may have a long life in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. When I was growing up in the 80s, we were uh, big fans of the Cosby show. You can't talk about that anymore because certain things have unfolded since then. But Bill Cosby's famous line on the Cosby show was, I brought you into this world, I can take you out. That is not what God is saying in verse 12. He says, honor your father and your mother so that you may have a long life in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. He is relating the commandment to honor your mother and father to the promise God has given them in the old covenant to remain in the land. The land is a critical component part of the covenant. He says, if you keep the covenant, you get to stay in the land. And what happens near the end of the Old Testament when they don't keep the covenant? They're exiled from the land. God says, if you want to stay in the land for a long time, be careful that you honor your father and your mother. In other words, the family unit, the family unit as God ordained it, the family unit as instituted by God, as constructed by God, is critical to your unity, your togetherness, to, to the idea that you might last in the covenant. The family and its functionality is a critical part of every church and every society. The family, the family, the family is critically important to the health of the church and every society. The family and its structure, its organization, is of critical importance to the advancement of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land. You will be helped, God seems to be saying, in keeping covenant. You will be helped in fulfilling the mission of God for the people of God by holding together as a family, honoring father and mother. Now, in, in, in no case are we exhausting all of the implications of these commands. But I think it needs to be said here that there are complicating factors in our day and age. 
We're living in a day and an age when, unfortunately, there are a lot of fathers and mothers who have not conducted themselves honorably. And there are children of dishonorable mothers and fathers in this congregation who struggle with, on an everyday basis, what it looks like to honor a father and mother who have not conducted themselves in an honorable way. And I'm not suggesting to you for one second that I have all the answers to all of those questions. But I, I, I know this. There's a certain nobility about bestowing honor and respect, even when it may not be our judgment that honor is worthy of being bestowed. God says, honor your father and mother that your days might be long in the land. God says in commandment number six, these get a little more straightforward, don't murder. Most everybody here this morning would check that box. Hadn't killed anybody, at least not this week. Stayed out of Memphis traffic. Everything's going smoothly with regards to thou shalt not murder. Number seven, do not commit adultery. It speaks of all manner of sexual immorality. All manner of, of sexual immorality. Number eight, don't steal. That is, don't take something that's not your own. It may be as black and white as breaking into a home and taking something that doesn't belong to you. It may be as gray as fudging the numbers on next year's tax returns. But the commandment stands. Do not steal. Commandment number nine, do not give false testimony against your neighbor. Simply put, don't lie. It's always been the case that honesty is the best policy, and that remains to be true. Commandment number 10, do not covet your neighbor's house. Don't covet your neighbor's wife, his male or female slave, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. This feels like, doesn't it? Maybe y'all are more spiritual than me. This, this feels like, at first glance, the most harmless of the commandments, right? Like, like if I break this one, no harm, no foul. In reality, it's, it's crucial. My, my grandpa, the way he would sort of do the end around on this, we'd be driving along and he would see something that he really wanted and he would say, I wish I had that and he had one better. That was kind of the end around, get around the covet thing. In the, in the Jewish system of looking at the Ten Commandments, command one and two are actually collapsed together. Have no other gods and don't make idols are commandment number one in the Jewish understanding of Exodus 20. And, and the last commandment, thou shalt not covet, is actually broken into two. Don't covet your neighbor's house, commandment number nine, and commandment number ten, don't covet your neighbor's wife, etc., etc., etc. So there's added emphasis in, in, in other systems or other approaches to the Ten Commandments on this business of coveting. And the reason it's critical, the reason it's a crucial part of the Ten Commandments, the reason that it matters, the reason that it's not without teeth, is because it has this internal element. It's outwardly observed, yes, but it has a strong internal element. Envy, covetousness is something that we experience in our innermost something that we feel from, from the inside out. If you covet, you'll probably, probably eventually steal. If you covet, you'll probably eventually commit adultery. If you covet strongly enough, you may run the risk at some point in your life of actually committing a murder. It's an, it's an inner thing that we begin to experience, and it, it works itself out externally. I want you to think before we turn to the New Testament, and, and I hope put a little different twist on the commandments for you about the way the law functions in our life. I just want to run through these very quickly. 
What is the purpose of the Ten Commandments for the Christian? Number one, the commandments teach us of our sinfulness and God's righteousness. If you have heard well what God has said in Exodus chapter 20, you should be sensing conviction over your sin because every man, woman, boy, and girl under the sound of my voice has violated these commands in total. In some way, shape, form, or fashion, you are broken under the weight of God's great commandments. The Ten Commandments, as with every command from God, prompt us, remind us, guide us in understanding the depth of our own sinfulness. You are not just sin sick. You are dead in your sins and trespasses apart from Jesus Christ. And the remnants of that illness exist within us even after given a new heart in regeneration. We're always wrestling with the depravity of our nature. We're always struggling against sin. We're always laboring to purge ourselves of this sinfulness. They teach us of our sinfulness and they teach us of God's righteousness. God is not a good old boy. In fact, he's not like us at all. God is holy, holy, holy. Secondly, the commandments secure civil order. Even secularists have to acknowledge the wholesomeness of the Ten Commandments. Now, now what they like to do is to dismiss commandments one through four. There's a recent study in Great Britain that find the first four commandments at about 65 to 80 percent irrelevant. That's the study, the statistics. That's the way the people of Great Britain see that. But they see the latter commandments, commandments 5 through 10, as very relevant. The interesting thing to me is, is where they find their authority for making moral judgment on how good or bad these commands are at all. The, ne the next time you find yourself in a debate with someone about the goodness of God given the presence of evil in the world, or the goodness of God based on certain things we find in the Old Testament, ask them what their moral authority is. Where do they get their authority to make a moral judgment about the goodness or the badness of God in general? There must be some external standard that establishes what is good and right. And try these by experience. We're not just grabbing at concepts out of the air. We've tried these principles and found them to be good and wholesome and healthy and helpful for a society. Every society has order restored and secured by the maintenance of these commandments. Thirdly, the commandments guide believers into the good works God intends for us. If, if you're a new believer, as many of you are, and you're looking for direction in your life, you're looking for what to do next, how to best serve him, by the way, growing in faith, growing in Christ, is not about understanding the mysteries of eschatology or unpacking all of the intricacies of soteriology, managing and maintaining and mastering systems. It's as simple as finding a command in God's word and laboring on that day and every day to come to do what God has required of you. In the New Testament letters, when the writer is critical of members of the church and their failure to grow in grace, it's not because they fail to understand certain things. It's because they fail to practice what they know they ought to be doing. They are hearers of the word only and not doers. 
If you're looking for a starting place, if you're looking for direction, if you're looking for something to do in service to God, make the saving grace of God known by living a life that honors the command that God has given us in the pages of his holy word. Now, thankfully, Jesus takes up the commandments, the subject of the commandments and the application of the commandments in the Sermon on the Mount. In the few minutes that we have left, turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 17. In Jesus' first and most famous sermon, his subject matter is the Ten Commandments. And he helps us to understand how to make application of these commandments and the fact that they, they each command, each command, regardless of how we've regarded them until now, internal versus external, measurable obedience, or something that's happening in our heart, each of the commandments have an internal component. They require of us more than we might understand at face value. So you can read through the commands, you can see thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, we're feeling pretty good so far. I shall not make idols. None of us have statues in our homes. There's a way to read the commandments that can leave you unfazed and unaffected. But, but Jesus really puts an exclamation on what God has said in the Ten Commandments. The first thing he does in chapter 5 and verse 17, it says, Don't think for one minute that I came to abolish or to nullify the law or the prophets. I didn't come to destroy them, but to fulfill them. And I assure you in verse 18, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all things are accomplished. Whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches people to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus is not saying the scribes and the Pharisees are bad. In fact, he's saying the scribes and the Pharisees have fulfilled the Ten Commandments and their requirements in the way that you might think they need to be fulfilled when you read them superficially. If you just sort of been dawdling along and you're reading, don't murder, don't steal, don't lie, I'm pretty good then you're understanding the commandments as the scribes and Pharisees understood them. And they did a phenomenal job at observing them externally. You wouldn't find a Pharisee who'd committed murder or adultery or who had violated one of these commands in most any way. They were honoring the commandments at this superficial level. Externally, they were doing all the right things. But Jesus says here, Unless your righteousness exceeds their righteousness, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. In verse 21, he, he takes the one that, that ought to be the box we can all check. Most all of us can say, we've never killed anybody. And Jesus says in verse 21, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder. And whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Y'all with me? Then, then in verse 27, look there. He says, you've heard that it was said, don't commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, this is the way the passage is most often misunderstood in my estimation. 
the passage is misunderstood in a way that suggests that having a, a bad feeling towards someone in your heart is the same as murder. That looking lustfully is the same as the physical act of adultery. And I think most sane people would acknowledge that we'd rather someone have a bad feeling toward us than pull the trigger on a gun and kill us. Even, even within the marriage relationship, we might not be comfortable with thinking, thinking of our spouse and their having lustful ideas, but surely we'd prefer that to the physical act of adultery. Jesus is not saying that those acts are the same. Please, Jesus is not saying those acts are the same. What is he saying? He's saying even if you make it all of your life without ever killing anyone or ever having adultery, there is still the inner heart issue that must be addressed. It's not so much Pharisees what you do. It's who you are. And who you are is a sinner by birth. And the only thing that can change that is a new heart by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see what Jesus does? He takes these externally observable commandments and he presses them inward. He says, Pharisees, you're like whitewashed tombs. You look great on the outside. You look remarkable. But on the inside, you are filled with dead men's bones. You are rotten. And I have no doubt in my mind this morning. Listen, this is not a word of judgment. This is just common sense based on experience. In this congregation, there are some of you who are whitewashed tombs who look spectacular on the outside. You appear to have it all together. Your life is lived out beautifully before, before the public. Everything looks stellar. You're wealthy. You're affluent. You live with a level of comfort. You have college degrees and great jobs and your family looks fantastic. But on the inside, you are full of dead men's bones, as broken, as backward, as hell-bound as those who are living in blatant external sin. Because it's not about the things that we do. It's about who we are. And until that problem is addressed by the gospel, we are, whether whitewashed or, or black as soot, condemned and bound for an eternity in hell. Jesus says, before you ever get to this external business, what you do on the outside, you got to do something about the condition of the heart. True external obedience that makes a difference in eternity starts on the inside and it works its way out. What legalism teaches, what the Pharisees taught, is that if you really want to get right on the inside, it works from the outside in. And I just got to tell you folks, righteousness Never, never, never works that way. It always works from the inside out. There, there's some of you, you're laboring away. You're trying to do all of the right things. You're doing your Bible reading plan. You're spending certain time in prayer. You're attending church services. You're checking all of the boxes. And you're convinced that somehow, some way, one day, that's going to change who you are on the inside. It never works that way. If you really want to see a difference in what you do with your hands and where you go with your feet, what you say, what you say with your mouth, your perspective, your worldview, the way you see things and the things that you pattern your life after, you come to God and you say, I'm broken, I'm sinful, I have no good works that would merit your favor. There's nothing that commends me to you. And like a child in the night, you cry out and say, God, give me a new heart. I trust and believe in Jesus. Change me, God. Change me. This is why Jesus said what he said to Nicodemus in John 3. Ruler of Israel, teacher of Israel, you know all the laws, you keep all the commandments. 
But I want you to know, Nicodemus, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. There is something undone in us that cannot be corrected in our own power. Brothers and sisters, what Jesus has done for us, we could not do on our own. Don't you think if there were another way, God would have found it before he gave his only begotten son? Jesus has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. And the only way that our raggedy mess is ever going to be anything more than a raggedy mess, you might put lipstick on the pig, but it's still going to be a pig. The only way it's ever going to be any more than it is at this very moment is by faith in Jesus that changes our heart and begins to shape our life from the inside out. I, I hope that with a sober mind, that you've heard what God has required of us, it's, it's an incredible standard. You may lay yourself down in the ditch and measure yourself against someone else's example, what your neighbor does, what your friend does, or what other members of the church does, but I promise you that won't be the standard on the day of judgment. But by faith in Jesus, we might stand before him, clothed in the righteousness of his son, judged not on the basis of deeds that we have done, but on the perfect righteousness of Christ, our Savior.